is at this point in our service that we listen to and for our God. And I invite you to turn uh, in your pew Bibles to Psalm 100, which can be found on page 500. If you do not have a personal Bible, come find me afterwards and I will make one available for you. Psalm 100. This is the word of the Lord. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people, and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And His faithfulness is to all generations. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Lord and our God, we thank you this morning that we can read and hear from your word. I pray that the meditations of my heart and the words that I will prepare and have available for your people would not be mine. The things that I say would be from you. Prepare your hearts of your people now to hear from your mouth. I'm just a humble servant trying to do your will. We ask this in your name, for your sake. Amen. So does how we worship really matter? It's a really important question. As we look at this passage, we consider this. We can quickly, as Christians, turn to think and go through things like Deuteronomy and say, oh, well, I love the Lord with all my heart, my soul, and mind. But sometimes, the way that I want to worship God is inconsistent with my feelings of what I want to do. Maybe what's going on with my heart, my interests, my passions, maybe how I feel called to be feels inconsistent with what I see worship in scriptures saying matters. Now you may be sitting here thinking, am I really given permission to pursue my interests? to worship in accordance with my heart? And maybe I've piqued your interest right there, and I hope so. I hope that I've piqued your interest. I am a guest speaker in this pulpit at the request of, of, of your pastor. But I, I, I think that it's important for us to think about our heart compared with scriptures, compared with what scriptures specifically say about worship. Because scriptures very explicit, explicitly tell us how we worship really does matter. And what we worship really does matter. And why we worship really does matter. That if we pursue because of worship, because of our desires, our passions, or if we worship in a way that makes us happy, if we do things in such a way that it's just all because of ourselves, or ourself or our kids' interests, 
we actually find ourselves worshiping in such a way that in scriptures it actually can tell us it's really dangerous. That it's in, not in accordance with his will. It's not in accordance with what God requires of his people. Now our text and our scriptures really gets to our, how, our heart in such a way that encourages, I believe, to really think about worship and dream about worship in a way that is deeper than our hearts. Because our hearts, if we go there and trust our hearts for how we construct our worship, we will really find ourselves operating from a place that is truly unhealthy. From a place that truly does not honor God. So my purpose this morning is really this. That you would see the longings, the longings that you see and crave cannot begin to meet the desires of your heart and the things that you need to worship God. Let me, let me restate that slightly differently. My purpose really is for you to see how we worship will dictate what our heart worships. And we are told explicitly how to worship God, and it's on his terms. I'm going to say it a third time just a little bit differently. My purpose is for you to see from this text how we worship will dictate what our hearts worship. And we're explicitly told to worship according to God's ways. I said it three times, but I really believe it is that important for us to see worship in accordance with God's will and God's ways. Our Westminster Confession of Faith would affirm this as well and tells us this in chapter 21, that the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men. Thus, the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in holy scriptures. Thus, there are many ways and many places that the Westminster Divines, when they wrote this hundreds of years ago, over several years, put this together and prayed over it and thought about this, that they put together this, that they, they, they pulled together those words from many texts. And I want to make these points from Psalm 100 here today. And if we look at this, I really believe there's some real directives for how and why and what it is that we're supposed to do when we worship God. I'm going to draw out three aspects from our text today. The first of these three aspects is this, that God calls for all the earth to worship Him. Second, that God calls for us to serve Him with gladness. And our third aspect is this, that God calls us to worship with a posture where He is at the center of our worship. Now again, God calls for all the earth to worship. Second, God calls for us to serve Him with gladness. And third, that God calls us to worship with a posture where He is at the center of our worship. Now look at me in your, in your Bibles. And you're going to see this first aspect of worship. That there is a call for all the earth to worship. You see it explicitly there in verse 1. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. The psalmist here is laying out a pattern of worship that's elevating who is to worship. Actually, if you look at that, it's showing how you are to worship. Who? All the earth. How you are to worship? With a joyful noise. Who is it to? To the Lord Himself. Our worship pattern laid out by the psalmist here 
It's very clear. The object of the work of, of our worship is the Lord. It's not us. It's for His glory. Defining worship in any other way is clearly not doing so in accordance with God's terms and God's heart and what He has desired for worship. Now, I know each of you got up this morning and you, you made decisions, right? You made decisions to come here and worship. You just made decisions to come into a service of covenant renewal. And I'm aware that I'm speaking to a sanctuary full of people who are doing something that is very countercultural to what the world says is important to do on a Sunday morning. And second, if you consider this and you look at this and you say, okay, the world would say to do things in accordance with, with my heart, my will, my way. Our text really affirms something very different here. And scriptures all throughout says something very different for how and what and why we are to live in accordance with God. But we're really doing this in such a way, too, that I want you to see here in this first verse a third point, And I'm going to spend some of my time here in regard to our first aspect, mainly rooted here. Because if you look and it says you are to enter with a joyful noise, right? Now, a joyful noise, we're good Presbyterians. It can cause us to wonder what that means. How does that look like? Uh, our Pentecostal brothers and sisters would give us pretty prescriptive ways of what that looks like, and uh, I would beg to differ for a lot of reasons. Although if you get into the Hebrew, there is a, a posture of joy or exuberance of what this means. And there is a very real posture of joy, of joy or exuberance. But many times, this word, uh, ruach, in the Hebrew, the way that it, it manifests itself, there is both a physical joy and exuberance that could be stated very explicitly, but there's also something internal, that there's a joyfulness, there's an, a, a joyful representation. So when our worship before the Lord is to be called joyful, it's to be done in such a way that there's something compelling about it, that there's something joyful within it. It's not by accident that I think the Lord puts these words here, that there's a joyousness when we think about our worship. Now, when we got up this morning, again, and we made these decisions to come to church, and, and I see many children in this room, and uh, that comes with its own complications. As you've seen, we have our firstborn child, and he's a little less than four months old, and uh, he is wearing his nightgown this morning, if you saw that. So I'm aware it is after 11 o'clock, and he's wearing his nightgown. But we look at these things, and we say, okay, there, there are complications and realities that we walk through. Are we called to always... Be joyful. Are we always expected to have this posture and to do these things in such a way? Well, there's an expectation with this that we are to make a joyful noise to the Lord. That yes, our heart's posture, our worship posture is that we are expected to have this. So if that was your heart's posture this morning, praise God. Rejoice in that. Take joy in that. There are many Lord's Day mornings that we get up and we're excited and we're exuberant with our worship. But if that was not your heart's posture as well this morning, you might be sitting there wondering, is there a danger here? Should I be concerned? If I do not find myself having a joyful noise in my heart when I come into the Lord's house of worship, should I be concerned? 
Well, I want you to consider Jeremiah 17, 9 for a second, because it reminds us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So we find ourselves, even in our worship, even from our heart worship, our heart worship is going to be prone towards the things that are not natural, that are not good. So sometimes we are going to be prone towards a posture that is not joyous. doesn't mean that we should be there. When we find ourselves there, it's an opportunity to return again to the Father and to repent. It is likely that He is calling you in that place to confess and say, Father, I'm not coming in this morning with a joyful noise and a joyful heart. You've called all the earth to do this. And I, as a covenant child, most of all, should be most joyous, should be most exuberant. But I'm struggling this morning. He's not surprised by our hearts. That's why He went to the cross. Because He knew... That our heart's posture, among any other sin, was not going to always be the correct posture. That we were not going to have perfect obedience. That's why he had perfect obedience. Because he knew ours would not be perfect. So take comfort this morning too. If you did not come in with a joyful heart. Because he offers that. He brings that. For he. He provides that. It is not our natural heart's disposition. We are prone to wickedness. And blinded by our own inability, there are times where by his graciousness we come in with a wonderfully, wonderfully joyous heart. But other times we don't. And it's an opportunity to repent and to draw close once again. Now, I've made much of this first verse here, and you go, man, this is a very light psalm, and you've made it pretty heavy. Well, I think there's a reality that in any, any psalm, even a psalm of thanksgiving like this, that there is joy and heaviness, because we see ourselves here. As we see something like this, we see the joy of a father who is good and gracious and kind, and we see his, his characteristics and his attributes here. But in that, sometimes there's condemnation of our own hearts, in the state of who we are. But I want you to, to see, after this first verse, I want you to see the second aspect here. And the second aspect is this. That we are called to serve with gladness, mind you. So we're called to serve the Lord with gladness. You see that in verse 2. You go, man, you're drawing all of your points explicitly straight from the text. Yes, that's where I draw each of my points here today. They're from the text. So when we say we are called to serve the Lord, there's something implied with that here for the Lord's Day morning of service. There's a posture that we see within that for our worship, that we are called to construct our worship in such a way that we are doing our service to the Lord from a place of gladness. Now, as was said in the morning announcements, I... Uh, I'm the director of Women and Family Ministries for a, a big rescue mission in Kansas City, so I do a lot of teaching and a lot of preaching in that setting. Uh, and, and at one point, I actually have, I've, I've taught this uh, passage in the past. And when we get to this point, a lot of the room was asleep. And, uh, and we, we sit here, and, and I said, well, the difference between verse 1 and verse 2 is this. The, the joyful noise is loud, loud, loud. And I got very loud to the point that I heard a crying baby from across the hall. So we won't do that. <laughs> for multiple reasons. This is the Lord's pulpit, and I, I respect it in many ways that I, I don't want to do that. But we also see here in verse 2, 
Why again does he draw in verse 2 gladness? Isn't there a lot of similarity between joyfulness and gladness? What's the difference here if we're looking at joyfulness and gladness? Shouldn't we understand the difference of these two things? I think that it's incredibly pivotal for us to understand and see in verse 2 our service with gladness is really this posture uh, that is not just shouting, but is, is, is pleasure. Pleasure is a word that I think actually, if you really get into the root word and what is going on here for gladness, we see this formation of, of, of really having something done in a way that is truly pleasing to God. And so when we serve God, we do so in such a way that it is uh, obviously pleasing for His name. So we're doing it for His glory. We're doing it for His kingdom. But for peace's sake, there's going to be byproducts. There's going to be benefits. There's pleasure that comes for us when we serve Him. Because He is the one who is good, who is true, who is right. So when we are serving Him, it is good for our hearts. It is pleasurous for our hearts. This joyous posture that we struggle with here in verse 2 when we serve, we find ourselves in such a posture of, uh, of, uh, uh, that is different from the first one in such a way that really it provides something for us from God, from His heart. That our service isn't really done begrudgingly. It's not done from a place of duty, out of obligation, and saying, hey, I'm a good Presbyterian who believes in regulated worship. And doing so in such a way in accordance with God will, God, God's will from His Word, that is good and that is right, and we, we worship in that way. But when we worship in that way, we experience pleasure as we serve Him. Now with service here, there's a reality that we are certainly setting up our service, our Lord's Day service in such a way that it is pleasing to Him, which brings us pleasure, which brings us joy, which brings us that satisfaction in our heart. But he owns everything. So there's a reality that I believe is captured here within this verse. And if you look at the context of service throughout scriptures, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's important and appropriate. And commentators as well would agree with me here that service goes beyond the Lord's day of morning. That we are called to serve him in all of our life. That Sunday to the next Sunday, till we return again on the next Lord's day of morning, Lord willing, that he is Lord over all of life. So our service should be done from a heart posture of pleasure, of gladness. And people go, well, okay, so what are you saying? What do you mean about service? Well, when we serve our world, when we serve our church, when we serve our family, when we serve our wives, are we doing so begrudgingly? Are we doing so because it's our duty? Are we doing so because it's a joy and an offering that we are bringing before our Lord? Are we serving our families? Are we serving His, His world? Again, He created all things. And saying, since you created all things, I am serving your world in such a way that I am experiencing that pleasure and joy and I'm doing this out of service to you, God. Or are we doing it out of duty? Because those are two different postures that we really think about when we look at these things. 
that it really puts things in a different, a, a different heart posture either way when we, when we get to ourselves and we look at our, our way, our, our, our way that we interact with the world. And if we think about those around us, we might say, oh yes, I, I do this all for the joy of the Lord. How would those people evaluate us? If we ask our bosses, our children, our spouses, how would you describe my character? Am I doing this because I'm called to do these things and I'm doing it out of duty? Or do you really see a joy that I am doing this because I love the Lord with my heart, soul, and mind? Is it reflecting an internal character or is it an external character? What's our motivator when we think about these things? Service typically has one. Think about this often when I teach classes and we teach life skills classes frequently. And service is often done in such a way that it's often done from a place of self and selfish pride. Or it's done from a place of other. And so for us as Christians, it must be and should be done from the place of service of other. It must be done from the service of place of God. And so we have these two motivations and we think about service in such a way that we serve God. Or are we serving ourselves? Are we serving our own hearts? Are we serving the one who has made our hearts, who is greater than our hearts? This incredibly joyous psalm of thanksgiving really is in a joyous season for the people who are singing this, this that are being called to sing this psalm as, as they are receiving this. It's this very strong heart reminder. It's this very strong picture that you see. You are called to serve the Lord in gladness all the days. All the days of this week, all the days of your life. And certainly to serve Him with your worship on the Lord's day in a way that is pleasing, with a posture that is in accordance with His will. For He is the giver of all good gifts. So enjoy Him forever. Serve Him with gladness. Now as we get here to this point in our passage, and we've looked at these first couple of verses, I think it's really important for us to then spend a good chunk of our time here in these next verses. If you look at our our sermon passage and our sermon title, you know that the Lord, He is God. That's really the the crux of this entire psalm. Psalm 100, really, if you look at it, it it, it really highlights that, that the Lord, He is God. And so whether you are all the earth, which is everyone, or whether you are somehow outside of that, which is no one, He is God. So that's our third point here that we look at this way. See, we know that the Lord, He is God. He made us. And so we worship Him because of that. We worship Him because He is truly God. We worship Him because He is really and fully good. We truly desire to place our worship in its rightful place because God made us. Because He created us and sustained us. As the one who keeps us alive, we see that He is God. We must see that we are not God. As we do this, it tears down that notion I talked about at the beginning, that it's okay to just, you do you. Or to do things in accordance with your heart's desires. Because we start realizing and accepting and believing and knowing that He is God. And knowing that there is something more and beyond our own kingdom. Because our own kingdom is controlled by one who is greater. 
So our, our psalm here is put it together in such a way that we're seeing that the source and substance of our worship, apart from God, really has nothing. It has no rootedness. You see this posture here in this, and it's actually this is, this is one of the psalms that has this posture of kingship, and it's these people that, if you really look at it, clearly we're coming before the king. And it makes sense. I mean, we as people are coming before the, before the king. And we know this, and we look at this, and we see these people who are saying, there's an acknowledgement that we have this prophet and priest and king who has truly spoken for us, who has made the payment for us, who rules over, over us. And we have to say, is he our God? Are we seeing that he's our God? Are we drawn towards those postures of thanksgiving as we read these places, and we see in his word from Genesis to Revelation that he really is truthful, that he really is is the one who knows both the dark and the light corners of our heart. As Romans 1 reminds us, he's the one who says that the world will suppress the truth. And claiming to be wise is actually foolish and exchanges the glory of the immortal God for foolish things of this world. It's put together in such a way so that we see that when we're left to ourselves, we truly are foolish. From our first breath to our last breath, He owns and controls everything. We acknowledge and see that our hope, every last bit of our hope, is found in Jesus' sinless life. That He gave His payment for us. Where He freely imputed and gave His righteousness and He took our sins to the cross with Him. And that reality of that double imputation is staggering if we really step back and think about that for a minute. It's comforting if and when we let it be. It's that reminder for our hearts that there really is a God who cares. Why? Well, look at verse 5. And you'll see. It's because the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness lasts throughout all generations. <clears throat> Do you hear that? He's good. He's loving. He's steadfast. It's forever. He's faithful to all generations. He has kept His covenant from Adam through the blood of the second Adam, Jesus, to all generations. It's for all people who are part of His covenant family. He's not withholding something from you. It's not that he's got something that he's holding back, that there's some trick that he's playing. He's a God who has kept his covenant to his people. It even says right here that he's faithful to all generations forever. So we should find ourselves taking joy and comfort in that. He is so good. He is so steadfast. That he is so consistent. That his word is true. So totally true. And that He is the one who will hold you fast until the end. There's not something that we have to do to hold ourselves. That He will perfectly hold us. Now with that, I hope there's some joy that is felt. That we, we think about that. We think about the joy of, of hearing about and reading about and thinking about a God who is here we're called to bless His name, as it even says in verse 4, and to give thanks as we enter into His gates with thanksgiving. 
and come before Him. But I'm also aware, in a room this size, in a sanctuary like this, that there are people who find themselves likely on the other side struggling. They likely find themselves reading this passage in such a way, and they say, yeah, I know that Scripture tells me, Lord, that You are good, that You are steadfast, that Your love endures forever. But I see this world, and it is broken. And I see this world, and my brother or sister doesn't treat me well. Or I don't treat my brother or sister well. Or I, I look out there and I know that there are things going on. Or the fact that there is death and decay and there is sin in this world. God, are you really good? How could a good God be a part of this brokenness? When I look at this brokenness, I struggle to trust God. I'm looking at this person, this thing, or even this Christian person in front of me that's hurt me. And here's the thing with that. When we're doing that, we've got it all wrong. Because right there in that moment, in that place, we are trying to make a person a thing that is already broken. Because from Adam on, humanity is corrupted. And we're trying to find our satisfaction in some person to satisfy us. Some broken thing that can never, ever fully satisfy us. We're trying to say, hey, because that's broken, I can't trust someone who can fix and redeem that. So we look at things that are broken, and we look at things that are hurting, and we say, because of this brokenness, I won't trust a good God who promises that He's good. So I look at the, the created things rather than the Creator, who is forever who is eternal. This thing that's in front of us, this person who is here for 50 years, our, our lives that are vaporous, might be here for 100 years. We look to this, this moment in time, rather than an eternal God. So if we think about Romans 1, as I already mentioned, claiming to be wise and looking at this moment, we already see in that moment we're actually foolish. How foolish those people are when they look at those things and we look at the brokenness and we say, I cannot trust God because of brokenness, because of sin. God says, that's right. This world is broken. You cannot trust this world because of the brokenness, because of the sin, because of those things. This world will let you down. Look to me. I am the author and perfecter of your faith. It's not that person. If you are looking for that person to perfect your faith, that that person who even maybe led you to your to, to faith, your, your, your father, your mother, or you grew up in a covenant family and there's not been a day that you don't know a day without faith, but then something comes along and you, you start to struggle and, and it gets confusing because we start looking to the circumstances of this day for the answers. We have to look beyond it and look to places like Psalm 100 and say, no, 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 the Lord is good. He says He's good. His steadfast love endures forever. He is outside of this. He is faithful to all generations. He's made my heart. He's claimed those corners right now that I'm struggling to believe in. Those corners that I, right now, don't think I can trust Him in. Because they feel irre irredeemable. Those spots that He's come for. 
Those spots Christ died for. Those spots for those who have by faith believed He's claimed. He made our hearts. He calls us with joy to bless His name. To enter into His house with thanksgiving to worship in accordance with His will. Because can't you see? Because if we don't worship in accordance with His will and His way, we're going to start constructing in a way that is in accordance with our will and our way, and it's going to get twisted and tainted, and that is going to become frustrating. And that is going to create anxiety, and that is going to create, create sin. So we do this, that we make joyful noises to the Lord, that we come before Him with singing. We worship in accordance with His will and His way. He is the Lord and He is our God. So we see that here in Psalm 100 and we see this throughout these five verses. It's a short little psalm, a powerful psalm. And I hope that we see ourselves seeing and savoring and serving and and, and pleasing the Lord and and knowing Him more and blessing Him and entering in, in worship before our God on His terms. And as we move towards concluding, I hope that we see it's all about Him. It's not according to our wants and our desires and what it is that we desire for worship. Because our heart is deceitful. And it will twist what is good worship and take things in a way that are not in accordance with His will. So, so consider with me for just a moment a couple points and thoughts. Why don't you consider these three things? Is our heart worshiping God on His terms? When we sit here on Lord's Day worship and when throughout the week, are we worshiping God on His terms? Two, do we struggle to worship God because we see the brokenness of the world? And is that something we hold up as a deterrent to keep us from rich, Meaningful worship with God. And three, is our service coming from a posture of gladness in the grace and mercy of God, or is it coming from a place of obligation? Now, Christians, hear the good news. If you find your heart coming up short, or when you find your heart coming up short, because in places I'm sure we all find our heart coming up a bit short, there is the reality. That there is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ for that. That He knew our heart could not perfectly worship Him of our own accord. It would be impossible on our own. So He came for when we would struggle with our worship. And He came and He put down in His Word how we are to worship Him. And He told us that He would make payment for our faulty worship even. Even our best of intentions in our worship. And we even see places like Isaiah 1 where it warns us that there's appropriate Lord's Day worship. And he even says in Isaiah 1 to, to, to those who are offering worship in, in an inappropriate way, he hates it. The Lord hated it. But come, see, taste, serve, enjoy Him. Worship Him. Not because we do so perfectly. Strive to know Him more. Worship Him on His terms. But find yourself enjoying Him. Find yourself seeking pleasure in Him. Because of the gospel and good news of grace of Jesus Christ and what He has purchased for us. 
Because of what He has done with that forgiveness of sins for us at Calvary. Because of what He has done for each of us at that point 2,000 years ago. That we remember that, that we cling to that, and we say that when we read Psalms 100. That because of that, His steadfast love endures forever. The Lord is good, and His faithfulness is for all generations. Let's pray. Father, I come before You this morning, and I pray that when this church worships, would You help her that she would sing and worship in such a way that she understands and believes the truth that You have so freely given us in Your Word. That she would believe and accept the good news of Jesus Christ and worship from that place with deeper freedom, both in her service on Sunday mornings as well as in all of life for You on that too. Help us to be in accordance with your desires. And when we fall short, would you be merciful to us? Not for our sakes, but for the sake of Jesus, our Savior and Redeemer. Amen.